Good morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as this Advent season draws to a close, we remember how you once sent your only Son to live with men. We praise you for renewing our hearts this day by pouring out your Spirit to comfort and to guide us. Lord, remember your gracious promise that our King will return to wipe away our tears and to defeat death, our other present enemy. Father, may the return come soon and his earthly reign with it. And we ask these things confidently in his name. In the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, he masterfully weaves together the announcement and the coming of John the Baptist with the announcement and the coming of Jesus. The coming of the lesser prepares the way for the coming of the greater. And in the same verses, he knits together the completion of Old Testament prophecy with the beginning of New Testament fulfillment. As our Lord put it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus himself, in his death and resurrection, is the first fruit of that kingdom. The birth of John proclaims the imminent arrival, but does not yet inaugurate the kingdom of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to today's um, topic is Luke chapter 1, verse 57 to 63. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name, and they made signs to his father, inquiring what, they wanted him, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now, we all know that Zechariah was previously able to speak, if not always tactfully, at least clearly. We, we heard him a couple of weeks ago talking back to the angel Gabriel in verse 18 with disastrous consequences. Suddenly, at the rebuke of the angel, he was silent and unable to speak. Now, to my medical mind, the sudden onset of inability to speak says, stroke. He had a stroke. 
When cursed by Gabriel, Zechariah must have had a stroke, so he was unable to speak. But look closer here. Verse 62. The neighbors and relatives wanted to solicit his opinion on the naming of his son, so they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. They made signs to him. Just like we saw us making signs as we were some of the members of our congregation were singing Silent Night. They were singing that because we have a member in, in, here in, in our church that, that doesn't hear Wilma. She can't hear you speaking. So you speak to her in signs. So why did, why did they talk to Zechariah in signs? It's obvious, right? He was silent and unable to speak. He was silent on the inside. He lost the ability to hear when he lost the ability to speak. You may think, well, that's, that's not so surprising. I mean, we see people that are deaf that are also unable to speak. No, we don't. Not, not this way. See, we see people that are born deaf or acquire deafness in early childhood, prelingual deafness. They are profoundly unable to speak. But not deafness that's acquired in adulthood. Okay? Deafness that's present in childhood, not only do they not hear their voice and get that feedback so they can correct their speech and articulate properly, but somebody who's born deaf has never really experientially had the notion of communicating by sound. It's a foreign notion to them. Those of you who participated in this singing, you have some sort of idea. Actually, we all do, because we tried to learn Alleluia, or uh, Christ, uh, Alleluia, you know, um, at, for baby Jesus. Um, but you remember how hard that is. Imagine, if you will, how hard that would be if you were born blind. That takes difficult to an entirely new level. That's the difficulty that people who are born deaf have learning to speak. But Zechariah wasn't born deaf. He was a grown adult. He suddenly lost the ability to speak and to hear. Now that's something that makes very little sense neurologically. But it makes a great deal of sense theologically. Let me explain, or here's my first point. Zechariah's muteness and deafness reflects the spiritual insensitivity and barrenness of the self-righteous. No matter how great their misguided efforts are to achieve a right relationship with God. Let me give you a, a more practical example to demonstrate my point. On a number of occasions, Brenda has expressed her concern that there might be something wrong with my hearing. 
because, well, I keep misunderstanding what she is saying, or I can't seem to recall things she has told me. Well, about two weeks ago, I took the plunge, I gave in to the inevitable, I went to the audiologist and had a hearing test. And you know what? My hearing is just fine. You see, I don't really have a hearing problem at all. What I have is a listening problem. Zechariah, it turns out, had the same problem. Refer back to our reading from a couple weeks ago. Every morning before the morning sacrifice and every evening after the evening sacrifice, a priest from the house of Aaron was chosen by Lot to offer prayers in front of the golden altar of incense which stood in front of the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. His prayers represented the prayers of all Israel. As Dave pointed out to us a couple of weeks ago, this was a great honor. This was a -a once-in-a-lifetime event that was possible only for members of this specific high priestly lineage, the descendants of Aaron. And while serving in this capacity, he gets a visit from the angel Gabriel. The same angel that we lit that pink candle to talk about his coming when he visited with Mary. We remember his visit to Mary, but what you may not remember quite so well is something we talked about nine months ago. A previous visit by the angel Gabriel that happened to take place at the time of the evening prayer as well in response to the prayers of Daniel for the salvation of Israel. And he brought with him this amazing prophecy of the 70 weeks. 70 weeks of years. 490 years that were going to pass between the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah. Now, it turns out the evening that Zechariah was serving in the temple, just about 460 years had passed since King Artaxerxes of Persia had made the declaration, go ahead and build the city of Jerusalem. And you might imagine his hopes His expectations were kindled by the return of that same angel in this day of days when he was serving in the temple of Jerusalem next to God's altar. In Luke chapter 1, verse 13, Gabriel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. Now, it's hard to appreciate in English, or even Greek, but the evening that the Lord broke 500 years of prophetic silence 
sending Gabriel to remind his people that the time was ripe for the appearance of their Messiah, the man on duty in the temple's name was Zechariah. In Hebrew, that word means Yahweh remembers. And the name he was to give the son that he was miraculously to sire was John. The name John means Yahweh is gracious. What incredible bookends, closing out the Old Testament and ringing in the New Testament. The Old Dispensation taught us that Yahweh remembers and keeps his promises. The New Testament teaches us that God is gracious and merciful in the steps that he has taken to forgive our own faithlessness and forgetfulness. Now, how precisely does Israel's holy representative respond to this gracious news of God's remembrance? He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, on the face of it, that has got to be the stupidest question anybody ever asked. I mean, let's face it. After about nine months, the proof that he is seeking is going to need to have his diapers changed. But what he's really saying here is, Gabriel, I can't. I don't believe you. It is not possible for Elizabeth to have a child, and I'm beginning to wonder if this salvation that we have hoped for is a myth. Now, do you appreciate the depth, the enormity of his unbelief and the appropriateness of Gabriel's response? So you see, Zechariah's problem was not that he didn't hear or understand God's promises. It was a lack of faith in God's fidelity. Paul tells us that faith comes from hearing. But here was Zechariah. He heard. Why was his faith still lacking? Well, like mine, Zechariah's problem was not a hearing, but a listening problem. Since he was not using his God-given abilities to hear and proclaim the word of God, Zechariah was deprived of them for a season. In order that he might better come to appreciate what an amazing privilege it is to hear and proclaim God's word. Similarly, Israel had been deprived of the voice of prophetic witness for 500 years in order that they might be better able to appreciate what an amazing privilege it is to hear, thus saith the Lord. Today, you and I live in a land where freedom of speech is our legal right. And our reading today gives us an opportunity to reflect. How am I using 
that freedom? Am I using it as God has intended? And if I don't, do I run the risk that maybe that might be taken away for a season in order that I might better be able to appreciate what a privilege it is to hear and proclaim God's word. 700 years before Zechariah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the Lord gives Isaiah this message for the people of God. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and turn and be healed. So you see, the organ of this listening problem isn't the ears, it's the heart. As Dave's often quoted us from a song, I'm the problem. The heart of the matter is, my heart is the matter. So as a consequence of a heart tuned out to God, Zechariah, like Israel, whom he represented, had nothing to say in response to God's great mercy, because his heart's desire was for something else. And so fittingly, his ability to hear and speak were taken from him. The punishment fits the crime. Remember how the Israelites in the desert were forced to drink the gold from their golden calf? Do you remember how the Egyptians, at the time of the Exodus, were plagued by beasts and forces of nature represented by the idols that they worshipped. So the psalmist explains this, the consequence of this hardness of heart, this self-induced inability to hear and respond to God's truth in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak eyes but do not see they have ears but do not hear noses but do not smell they have hands but do not feel feet but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throats those who make them become like them so do all those who trust in them the jews in zechariah's day believed perhaps even as you do, as, as certainly as I did until recently, that they had cast off their idols. But had they? Or had they simply polished them up, polished up the externals, given their idolatry a facelift? In the Talmud it says, there's no generation that doesn't have at least a particle of the sin of the golden calf. Now we don't recognize the Talmud as scripture. But those are wise words nonetheless. What was the idol that had captured the heart of Israel? What could possibly be that they would want more than God's presence? For over 500 years, they had chafed under foreign rule. The crunch of a Roman boot still echoed in their streets. Zechariah was serving 
in a temple being renovated by Herod the Great. This project was to be his legacy, a project reminiscent of the Tower of Babel, a building project that had been going on for 20 years and would continue for another 60 before it was destroyed by the Romans a mere 10 years after the last brick was set in place. What did Israel want? They wanted a Messiah who would bring them not fellowship with God, not remission of their sins, but rather the glory days of Solomon in all his splendor. What they wanted was to make Israel great again. Doesn't that sound chillingly familiar? When Zechariah is asked, what do you want the boy to be called? They asked him the wrong question. But he wrote the right answer. His name is John. There can be no discussion, no debate. That is the boy's name. Thus saith the Lord. And after nine months of silence, Zechariah's voice is graciously returned to him at last, and he doesn't waste any time in idle chatter. He doesn't explain the story to the crowd at his home. He doesn't outline the momentous events that would have led to the naming of this child. He has something far more important to say, something that he should have said, but he couldn't. He has waited for nine months to share this news, and the news will not wait not one more minute. Out of the overflowing of a heart filled with the Holy Spirit, his mouth speaks, praising God for the great work that God is accomplishing. But before we go on to what he has to say, Let's hear, what, let's hear from Luke about the reaction of his neighbors. Verse 65 and 66. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now chronologically, these verses belong after Zechariah's speech. It takes time for rumors to spread far and wide and years to the see the hand of God on a child growing to manhood. When the people asked, what would this child be? They were wondering, is he the one? The one that for thousands of years they had been waiting for. Is he the seed that will crush, the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent? Is he the prophet like Moses? Is he the servant that will bring light to the nations? Is he the one like a son of man who would give, be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him? But you know, if they had only listened to the words coming out of Zechariah's mouth, rather than just gaping at the simple fact that he was speaking, they would have known John was none of these things. Great he was, but John was not 
the one. Let's listen to those words now. In Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 75. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah praises the Lord for having raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. But Zechariah and Elizabeth were from the house of Aaron. That would be the tribe of Levi. The house of David was from the tribe of Judah, Levi's younger brother. In Zechariah's day, no one was talking about the house of David. There was a king in Israel, but he wasn't even a Jew. He was an Idumean, a descendant of Esau. The house of David was nowhere to be found because they had gone into hiding for their own survival, living out a life of obscurity in Galilee, in the detested province of the kingdom of Samaria. The temple was the rallying point for Jewish nationalism, not the monarchy. And the house of Aaron, to which John was a hereditary member, remained in control of that house. And only a single obscure verse in Psalm 110, referring to the priesthood of Melchizedek, hinted that this would not always be the case. My second point is this. God's rescue plan outstrips human effort and defies human understanding, requiring a merciful and undeserved gift, the long-awaited Messiah. In the first eight verses of Zechariah's prayer, he isn't talking about the temple. He's not talking about the role of the priesthood. He doesn't even mention the miraculous birth of his own son and the boy's impeccable high priestly lineage. He doesn't comment on the child's potential. Maybe he could be the high priest someday. All the sort of things that Steve can tell you a young father might think about. Why? Because John's miraculous birth, John's life and work, the life and work of all the prophets, the work of the Levitical priesthood itself, all were only signs pointing to something even greater. And Zechariah had come to understand this, something that would take the apostles quite some time to recognize. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Instead of thanking God for what he has done for Zechariah personally, 
He blesses God for the great work that this miracle foretells, the visitation and redemption of God's people. The song reminds me of the song of Moses from Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Do you notice how Zechariah has switched to the past tense? Up until this point, he's been talking about what the name of his son is and what the child's future will be. But Zechariah praises God as if all these messianic promises had already come to pass. Because you see, in Zechariah's mind, it was as good as done because God had said so. Even though the temple was still under construction, even though it was doomed from the start, even though the Jews would be scattered for 2,000 years, even though they remain surrounded by their enemies to this very day, still, this promise is the rock of their confidence in their salvation. All doubt is cast from Zechariah's mind. This is the faith of a man filled with the Holy Spirit. How does it compare with my faith? At the temple where Zechariah served, there was a bronze altar for sacrifice, the golden altar of incense we've already talked about. There were golden lampstands, tables of showbread, a bronze sea and basins for the uh, priests to uh, ritually cleanse themselves. But there was one critical item missing that had been present in the previous temple. Zechariah couldn't see it because his view was blocked by the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. But the Ark of the Covenant was lost. And along with it, its contents, the tablets of God's word, the pot of manna that fed Israel in the wilderness, and the rod of Aaron that budded, legitimating his priestly authority. All these were missing. And Zechariah knew that. But in the three months prior to John's birth, Zechariah had had a personal visit by the Ark of the New Covenant, the Theotokos, God-bearer. She had tabernacled in his house. Inside this humble Jewish girl dwelt God's word incarnate, the bread of life, and the budding new priestly office. Let me remind you of a promise made to Abraham, a promise that Zechariah, Yahweh remembers, recalls in his prayer. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so now the seed of promise to Abraham had arrived. The seed of a horn of salvation had been planted in the house 
of his servant David. And that seed, after so many years of barrenness and false hopes, would grow to be the hope of Israel. Finally, after almost as an afterthought, Zechariah turns his attention of the next words to his own son. Verses 76 through 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So again, as Zechariah turns his attention to his son, he shifts back into the future tense. He's no longer speaking about what God has already accomplished, but rather the part that his child, John the Baptist, will play in preparing the way of the Lord. It reminds you of laying out the red carpet before an arriving monarch. His work is significant, but preparatory to the coming of the kingdom. John is the best supporting actress in God's unfolding drama of redemption. In this role, he is the Elijah figure announced by Malachi. Elijah's mission was to denounce the idolatry that had taken root in Israel in his day and to prepare the way for a line of prophets who would follow after him calling over and over and over for Israel to repent and return to the Lord. John, the son of Aaron, a child of the priestly office, would become the last and the greatest of the prophets, preparing the way for Jesus, a child of David, a child of the royal line, who would himself become the last and the greatest high priest. John would till the stony soil of the hearts of the age with his message of repentance. It would be Christ who would plant the seed of the new birth in that broken ground. So my final point is this. I'll be brief. As a sign of God's faithfulness and mercy, John's miraculous birth pointed not to himself, but the one for whom he was simply a messenger. You notice how Zechariah doesn't dwell for very long on the career of his own great son. Rather, his eyes are lifted upward to the work of the Lord, work for which John's own career will inexorably point us. Luke closes his narrative on John's birth with these words, verses 78 through 80. Because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It will be not John, but Jesus, that sunrise that shall visit us from on high, who would give light to those who sit in darkness. As John the Evangelist put it in his gospel, the Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Zechariah himself had personally experienced God's tender mercies. During his time of silence, he came to learn who he really was. 
He could have claimed to be circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Levi, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Sadducee. As to service, a minister in the temple. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Instead, like Paul after him, he came to see himself as God sees him. A man enslaved to a sinful heart. And as he was healed of his infirmities and was blessed with this child, the prophet of the Most High, for a son, he knew in a very personal way God's tender mercy toward a heart laden with sin. You can learn a lot about God from his revelation in the world. You can learn of his mighty power. You can learn of his matchless wisdom. You can learn of his glorious majesty. But you cannot know the character of God, his tender mercy, without his word. And that character is best expressed in his son, who so willingly emptied himself of all divine and eventually all human dignity in order to restore what had been lost. He did not care for us in a detached way, but he came to dwell with us. Like the miracle of John's birth, the miracle of our own new birth points to something greater. Christ's church does not exist for her own sake, but to go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. We have heard it from his own lips. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. The best way to do that, as Zechariah learned the hard way, is to open your mouth. As we prepare to celebrate the coming of our Lord this Christmas, let us remember that that same Lord is coming back. Let us always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. And we hope that the day of the Lord's coming may come soon. Let's pray.